This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Thorn Podcast. Joining me this week is a special guest, Dr. Chris Mason, who's a professor of uh, multiple disciplines he can tell you about at Weill Cornell Medicine. He's the co-founder of Longevity, which was acquired by Thorn Health Tech last year, and a scientist and entrepreneur whose work focuses on understanding the human genome and microbiome so we can better fight disease. So, Chris, welcome, and uh, how about we start by telling our listeners exactly what you do and and who you are. And I want to preface that by saying that I I glanced again at your website for the Mason Lab, and there's a picture of you and a bunch of guys sitting in the New York City subway. And (laughs) underneath that, it says, Integrative Functional Genomics. So what the heck? Uh, (laughs) What does subways have to do with, and what is Integrative Functional Genomics, and and who are you? Yeah, well, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, yeah, again, I'm Chris Mason. So I have uh, wear a number of hats, and one of them is really the the great benefit of doing a lot of research at at Thorne in the kind of the longevity division. Again, we were acquired last year. But a lot of the work that's on, you know, testing out some of the Thorn products in clinical trials or developing new methods or new approaches to, to modeling how patients are responding to, you know, probiotics, prebiotics, supplements, really, you know, medications and seeing how their bodies respond and can we improve uh, how we help patients along on their journey is something I've had the really great pleasure to do at, at Thorn uh, and previously at Longevity. So we do all as a t- big team now. But also where I had at Cornell, so the lab there, the Integrative Functional Genomics Lab is, you know, to break that down, it's, you know, a lot of genomics. So we look at at DNA and RNA and sort of the barcodes of life, things that kind of give you the recipe to uh, make all your cells in your body. We try to see when it gets mutated or changed or damaged, which can lead to disease. But we also look at the microbiome and we go swab in subways, we swab patient samples, we do you know, nasal swabs, throat swabs, rectal swabs. Really, if we can swab it, we're looking at it. <laughs> and astronauts. And too. astronauts, right? And in astronaut, uh, you know, uh, butt wipes, all kinds of things. Doing, you know, because every part of your body has its own ecosystem, right? And that includes on the outside of the body things that are kind of obvious, like your ear, wet ear lobes, and inside your ear is different from your feet. But also, you know, you can see in your mouth uh, or what's in your gut, there's all these other microbiome ecosystems that are key factors in human health and disease. So we want to have what I like to say is a, is a kingdom agnostic view of the biology, like, you know, because if you're sick, you don't care if it's a human cell, a bacterial cell, or a virus, or whatever is making you ill. You just want to figure it out and get rid of it or change it. And so yeah, we try to look in integrative functional genomics. We look across what is the function of each genome, whether it's human or otherwise, and then integrate that data. And um, that's yeah, what the lab does. And so, but personally, I'm just a kid from Wisconsin now. I live in uh, Bitbag, New York City. <laughs> 
Well, that's a lot. It sounds like you've got a really fun job, to be honest. Like, you know, you get to explore the unknown. I mean, you know, we talk about uh, Star Trek exploring the unknown in space, but, but there's a lot of unknowns about the world we live in. Yeah, I actually, I, I have the best job really quite possible because every day my job is to learn and discover, which we do literally every day in the best possible way. It means we have the most data on any given day when I wake up. It is the best day to do my job as a geneticist. I have more data on every given day than the day before. So the capacity for discovery, the ability to leverage that data for new patients and for new clinical results is is literally and empirically better every day. So it's not even my opinion that it's the best day ever to do my job. It, it's just a fact. It's just the, the state of the of the field. And so I'm very fortunate. So the, every day there's a new question to be asked and resolved. Yeah, and more data to address it and to understand it. So it's, it's wonderful. So I, I'd like to start by bringing up a fellow who I'm sure you're familiar with, Dr. Craig Venter, who uh, is famous for asking a question that we didn't have an answer to, which is what's out there around the planet in the oceans. And so he got on his boat and sailed all over the planet and collected samples. Can you tell us a little bit about what that uh, involved, you know, what he found and what it meant? What were the implications? Yeah, happily. So he, you know, actually, you know, Craig Venter was the person who published the first sequence genome. It was a, a virus and he looked at bacteria as well back in the mid 1990s. But with the completion of the first human genome in 2001 and started looking at fruit flies and worms, he, I think, got a caught a bug, which many people in the genomics field get is, okay, we can understand one genome, for example, the human genome. You know, even there, we barely understand all of it. But at least to have the very first map of the genetic, the, of the, the book of life, whereas before we didn't even know the letters, uh, how they were placed in the book of life. We didn't know what were the constituent parts that made a human cell become human and how did it encode all of its functions. But once you get that first map, you can start to tease it out. And, and that's part of the functional genomics part of our lab as we look at what are the functions of each of these bases. But, you know, invariably, you know, once you have that first map, you want to say, well, could I make maps of other creatures and find out what's out there? And it's even sometimes it's a very fundamental question. I think when we've all been kids, if you're wandering around a garden, you see one, two, three insects, you see, you know, different plants, you see uh, you know, really different organisms all around you. And you can't help but wonder you know, how many plants are there? How many kinds of bugs and worms and beetles and you just kind of marvel at the complexity and diversity of life. And as Charles Darwin did, just kind of wonder, well, where is it all? How does it change? And how many kinds of them are there? And so he went into the Sargasso Sea, Craig Venter did, and said, okay, I want to go find anything that's in the oceans and just sequence everything that's there and start to build a genetic map of the planet, really. Uh, it was kind of some of the first data sets of what's called metagenomics, meaning it's across all genomes, kind of like, you know, uh, you, you look at one level above a genome, it's metagenome, it's across all species. So it's human, bacteria, uh, viruses, it could be plants, fungus, anything that's there, when you sequence it, you'll see it and assemble it and start to understand it. And he did that in the Sargasso Sea and found thousands of new organisms. And we have done the same thing, actually, uh, going out to Swab's uh, cities and particularly subways around the world and also find it to be this bounty of new species, new functions, uh, new new life, quite literally under our fingertips. I seem to recall you saying in a lecture years ago that when you began mapping all these species in different cities, I think you called it the metropolome or something like that. Yes, that, yes, that's right. <laughs> the metropolome, that you said that 
uh, this huge percentage of species you found were unknown. Like all, all you knew was that it's got to be some kind of bacteria or it's got to be a virus, but we don't know what it is or we don't really have a name for it. Is that still true? Yeah, 100%. So we, we've seen, you know, what, what I mean by that is we take, when you get a you sequence a sample, you end up getting millions and millions of these short fragments of DNA, which are usually about, you know, a few hundred letters long. So you basically take that sequence and that'd be akin to say walking into a library, uh, you know, say a large university library that has, you know, mi millions of books, and you want to take a snippet of text that you got, like from a shredder, and say, okay, I want to know where does this belong, right? You want to map it to the appropriate text from which it came. So, you know, it's like trying to find, you know, just a source of a, of a, of a quote, for example, mm -hmm. or is it from Shakespeare? Is it from, is it from, you know, is it Ken Stanley Robinson? Is it some other uh, sci-fi writer? But, you know, I figure out where a quote came from or a snippet of text. And to do that with DNA, you basically align it. I mean, you compare it computationally. You take each sequence and compare it to every other known sequence uh, that's ever been seen. And when we do this, when we did that then, we saw there's about 49% of all the fragments out of those millions and millions of fragments of DNA matched no known species. And so they, it doesn't mean that the New York City subway is full of aliens, although <laughs> sometimes it feels that way. Yeah. Uh, but it just means that our databases are still incomplete, right? So we, our, our understanding of the totality and the diversity of life is still being created and accreted and, and expanded. We're, we're nowhere near the saturation of, of understanding what life we can even look for. And so every time we sequence a sample, um, we actually see a lot of times new species or new variants of species. So I know that um, this kind of uh, genomic testing has gotten to the point where you can, say, swab a room and then tell if an individual has been there. Can you do that with a city? Can you look at a series of samples and say, this looks like Sydney, Australia, or, yep. you know, do Sydney's yeah. have their own individual personalities microbially? Yeah, they just like they have their own sort of uh, linguistics and accent. They kind of have a microbial signature as well that we can pick up. And with about 93% accuracy, we could take a swab from a shoe or from, you know, a sample in a city and tell you where it came from. So it, it has this forensic application, which was unexpected to see how well it worked. And this is part of a global consortium. It's called MetaSub, which is the metagenomics of subways and urban biomes. It's actually over 100 cities of people that we get together once a year virtually, and we in, in unison swab across the whole planet. So we create these planetary sort of microbial censuses uh, on an annual basis. So it's this really fun group of collaborative, passionate swabbers, and, and they just love to swab. Passionate swabbers. <laughs> <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of vigorous uh, wrist shaking. It's good. And what is it? What is all this telling you about the world that we live in? I mean, it seems like that's a two-part question. One is, are these um, these microbes that are out there, they're, they're interacting with us, obviously, right? They're having an impact on our health in some way. And you mentioned earlier that, that most of the bugs you found on the subway, they're not harmful. They're not going to kill you. But do they interact with us? Do they do they exchange DNA with our own DNA? They, well, they exchange, you know, the microbes do get transferred, say, from your hand to the pole or the seat to your elbow. There is a continual exchange of microbes that are either, you know, resident in the systems uh, or, or they're just recently left there by, you know, your, your other fellow riders. And what's interesting, is, as you noted, most of them are pretty innocuous or harmless. They look a lot just like normal skin flora that you'd find, um, 
like uh, some acinetobacter or what's called staph, staph. You might think of staph. I don't know staph infection, but staph epidermis is very commonly found in the skin. So it's just a really a normal resident microbe that represents actually a pretty healthy uh, skin. So you, most of them just look like human skin, the species that we find there. But we have seen that they change really on an hour by hour basis. Some places we swabbed at a, in a continual sampling across hour, hour, every hour on the hour, and we can see continual movement and exchange. And so it means you do sometimes bring it home with you, and uh, they could potentially change you know, what's on your skin and potentially your health long term. And, and your wife wants to know who you brought home with you? or <laughs> <That's true. laughs> Right. Really, yeah, you could be like, I brought thousands of friends home with me, which might go over <laughs> not that well, but uh, you know. How much, if you go out and ride the subway every day, how much does that affect your intestinal microbiome? Does it have an impact? It, we, so I don't think too much for intestinal microbiome. It really depends how much you bite your nails or put food in your mouth yeah. uh, that you find in the subway. So it shouldn't affect your gut too much, we don't think. But definitely your skin uh, will will get you know an exchange between the environment. I'd say obviously it's your largest organ and has the first line of defense against anything that you might have that could be bad. But the gut microbiome, you know, what's interesting though is we can see, you know, of course it has uh, a lot of normal species, what are called firmicutes and bacteroides, which are these kind of your sort of staple organisms that are present as this anchor to the ecosystem. And that we can actually see sometimes though, um, we see that in wastewater. We also look at wastewater studies. And so we can actually gauge the health of a city based on what is left behind and also track COVID. So we've been have multiple projects tracking the emergence of COVID variants in cities around the world, uh, uh, you know, using what's kind of fine. Well, now that we're not really tracking COVID cases that much with with humans, it seems like this wastewater testing has become the major tool we have to figure out what's going on globally. That's right. I mean, and it's good because everyone has to, at some point, you know, go to the bathroom. So it's pretty unbiased. Uh, I mean, there are some people doing, taking, you know, camping trips and they're going out in the woods, but there's not that many, right? So, but otherwise everyone, you know, flushes away their waste, but that it is extraordinarily rich information about what, and not just COVID, but also we just actually, just this morning, I was on a call. We just picked up monkeypox uh, also in the sewage. So we can pick up emerging pathogens, anything that's beginning to, you know, percolate through the population and emerge we have this, you know, molecular view of the epidemiology of a metropolis, which is really interesting. So when I studied microbiology in college, um, and I actually worked my way through college working in a micro lab, and we were swabbing plates all day. We take samples, you know, it was still swabs. You start with a swab, but you swab a blood plate or an auger plate, and then you see what grows and what inhibits it. But now the testing that you're using, it is like Star Trek. It's you know, way out in the future. I'm wondering if, is there a, in a nutshell, can you explain to people what you're doing with metagenomics and how that's different than the, the ancient methods that we use when we, we played at things to look for bad bugs? Yeah. So we still do some of that to, to confirm what we can detect, but now when you sequence the organism, meaning you look at all the DNA that's present, we can see the antimicrobial resistance markers, like these antibiotic resistance molecules are made by the genes that the organisms have picked up, right? And you can sequence them, you can see them. So we can actually quantify how much of resistance it can have before you see it, you know, phenotypically, meaning like you see it on a plate and you can test it that way. And sometimes though, there's, it's more complex because an organism might be potentially resistant, but doesn't really get activated to be resistant uh, until it's challenged or until a later con later state. But we can, you know, you don't have to plate it to, to know what it could be resistant to, but you might uh, still want to plate some organisms see what it's actively resistant to and really functional uh, and, and able to resist to and then validate that. So 
It's still useful tools. Those skills are still good to keep hang on to, I'd say. They, they may come in handy, but we would never have had the ability to do what you're doing now, which is figure out what's what's in the subways and in the oceans and and really in our guts. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's the part that's really interesting is where, where we've really progressed in terms of figuring out what's in a human intestine. Yeah. And also, I mean, what's exciting is for like with the, the Thorn, the gut health test that we run for all, a lot of our patients and customers, you get this full catalog of what's in your gut as well as essentially what the implications are for your health. You have more or less diversity or different species to be added or removed. And we also, everyone does get this little pie graph of how many unknown microbes are in their gut. So we also include that. And, you know, these methods are really cutting edge and and just define the the way the field works today. And in particular, they give you a lot of discovery for the future too. You can go back and look at the same data set 20 years from now and find new things about it. So it has a lot of long-term use too. So one thing I would point out, and maybe you can explain this more, is that the kind of technology that you have worked with, with Longevity and now Thorn, looks at all the DNA in the sample, which is really different than kind of the first generation stool DNA testing, which use, they use probes. So that they could say, well, we're going to look for this bacteria. We're going to look and see if you've got, you know, bifidobacteria or lactobacilli. So you have to look for something to know if it's there. Whereas this is exactly the opposite. Uh, as you, I think the word you used earlier is it's agnostic. You know, you, you look at everything that's there. Can you say something about that? Yeah. So most, even other tests on the market and even di- diagnostic tests, like if you go to Quest or LabCorp or go to a lab and say, okay, I want to get tested for strep, or I think I might have COVID. You, you know, a lot of these tests are very particular, they are focused on one or two pathogens, maybe five or 10. And, and they have, you know, essentially a chemical assay, uh, often, which is PCR based uh, polymerase chain reaction, which just tries to amplify a targeted region of one specific part of one particular organism, or if it's what's called multiplex, meaning you do more than one at a time, it does it maybe for five or 10 uh, species or a few more. But what's interesting about you know, the being unbiased and agnostic is we sequence every molecule that's in that sample. So if it's monkeypox, if it's COVID, if it's uh, Staph aureus, if it's, you know, MRSA, if it's something that's any variation of any species, as long as it has DNA or RNA, we can sequence it and see what it is. So it is the most, you know, thorough and, and broad view of the biology of a sample because you get this really uh, almost un- completely unbiased view of all the molecules. There, there are some caveats. So if something is you know, really abundant in a sample, you'll see more of that species than a different one. So if something is really rare, like you had just the very beginning of an infection, you might sometimes miss low abundance, uh, low abundance species. It's the only caveat. But otherwise, it's uh, with something we do more more than any other assay because it has the greatest potential for discovery and, and use. Now, I'm sure you know Dr. Martin Blazer, who wrote a famous book called The Missing Microbes. And he says that uh, what's happening uh, in, in the human gut is that uh, we actually have fewer and fewer overall microbes than we used to have. And that that impacts our health when you do this metagenomic testing is that something that shows up? Can you can you see that? Yeah, we can see this. The, you know, so we, if the diversity is is falling, right? So actually, uh, in our guts, in our skin, even just in even in even in the subway, we can see this. Is during the pandemic, we could see the diversity of species found on the subway system drop down because there were less people riding it. Oh, so we can see even in cases of really sharp perturbations like a pandemic, where it changes the environment. But in our own bodies, comparing you know our guts versus those of samples banked from twenty or thirty years ago, he called the book The Missing Microbes because we're, we're really, frankly, missing microbes, right? So we know this just relative to 
to past samples and relative to other tribes that have been sampled uh, that are still, say, in the Amazon or other Aboriginal samples, they do, do seem to have a greater number of species, different types of species. They have this more robust and diverse ecosystem, which like all ecosystems, you want to have that because it's more resilient if you try to, if you kill one or two species, but you only have five that are really abundant, that'll be really destructive. But if you have dozens of species, you can tolerate more loss uh, of one or, or two species. And so that's, that is what we're seeing, unfortunately, in the guts. But what the good thing is we don't have to sit by, we can actually add probiotics, we can mm -hmm. monitor these changes, we can help people uh, in theory, tweak and and improve their basically their entire gut ecosystem. Well, I know that um, it's pretty clear when you sample the gut microbiome of people in the ICU, right, that have had, you know, trauma or, you know, something bad has happened. They're really sick. And those people do get down to just a handful of species. Um, so it's clear that that's bad. Is it has it been established that these Amazonian tribes that have a lot more microbes in their gut, are they healthier as a result of that? It seems to be. I mean, some of these studies are small and having only a few dozen people or maybe a hundred and interesting, you know, data, but it's, it's too early to say definitively, I would say, but they, they definitely are distinct where markers of inflammation seem to be much lower. And uh, even stories I've heard from uh, Larry Weiss, who's the uh, founder of Persona Biome and other uh, companies, he was at AO Biome before that. He's been there to visit some of the tribes and they don't really have any acne or, you know, they seem to be missing some of these other more modern ailments that we have. So it really is this intriguing thought of what if we could find the species we've lost and then put them back into our our diet, put them back into our life and back into our bodies. So, it, um, so it's an intriguing question. It's early days, but it's definitely some evidence that that's the case. And does it look like we're on to some clues about how to enhance that diversity? I mean, you know, not, not just guesses, but things that we know will do that? Yeah, uh, at least in terms of what are these called keystone species, which really kind of hold the ecosystem together. There are at least now candidates being tried uh, that that will help that. And one, one of the most notable ones for gut health is Acromensia mesonophilia, which really seems to be a great driver for maintaining gut health and also reducing risk of even diabetes. So, you know, it's not just about maintaining the ecosystem, it's also processing your food. And when you take medications, it processes your medication. So it's really, if you're looking for the nearest pharmacy, you just got to look at your gut. And so it's important for almost all aspects of, of uh, how you, how your health and disease for humans. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, one last thing before we take a break that I wanted to, to bring up is that these new discoveries about DNA alterations, et cetera, have also extended to screening the body for cancer. Like we're looking at DNA floating around in our bloodstream. And I wonder if you could just speak to that in a, in a sentence or two about what's the potential of, of, of this genomics frontier for cancer screening. Yeah, it is really also fundamentally changed how we do cancer screening and also prenatal screening. So, you know, there's fragments of DNA in our bloodstream that are always being shed because cells are dying and being born all the time. But as they die, they give information about where they came from in your body because DNA, of course, the DNA is the same in every cell in your body, but what is turned on or turned off uh, is, is a control called epigenetics. And that can be controlled by little, little chemical marks called methylation, which what that means is if you take all the fragments of DNA floating around your bloodstream, if you look at these epigenetic signatures or methylation, you can see which tissues are dying, you know, more than others. And you can even see, you know, if it's a cancer cell, they have distinct epigenetic signatures and you can look for those in the blood. So you can look for mutations as well as epigenetic differences. And this has fundamentally changed how we screen for 
newborns, but or not not newborns, but you know, prenatally, you can look for yep, yep. You know, fetal for abnormalities, just Down syndrome, blood. things like that. Yeah, or... yeah, it's fundamentally changed how you know. Ten years ago, it was all amniocentesis and CVF with that a pretty high risk of miscarriage. But today, for cancer is now undergoing the same transformation, where uh, you basically uh, you can screen for early stage cancer, but also as you're undergoing therapy, you can see the mutations go away if the therapy is working, and you can quantify how many molecules of the cancer cells are showing up in your blood because it's like having a whole body molecular scan just with one blood draw because your blood is this, you know, liquid organ that captures, you know, basically molecules from all of your body. So when you sequence them and look at all those fragments, you can tell where they came from, if they're mutated and if they're cancerous. Um, and so it's really a hope that you can start to detect cancer maybe really early before it starts to spread. So this is really just a variation on the same technology you're using to look at the gut microbiome. Now we're doing liquid biopsies, so-called liquid biopsies, where we look at the DNA circulating in your bloodstream. Yep, exactly. You just basically take all those fragments, prep them and sequence them, and then characterize where they came from. So it's kind of like that what we do for subways and see what city did your fragment come from. You can do the same thing inside your body and see, well, what tissue did it come from? Does the tissue look normal? Does it look like it has cancer? And so it really is this powerful tool. The, se the sequencing tools really reveal this uh, really vast area of biology that you can use for diagnosing cancer and then seeing treatment of efficacy, but then you can maybe catch it early as well. Things have definitely changed since I went to school. <laughs> it's, a, it's a whole new world out there. And uh, I think it, it comes in handy to know how to use a computer. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of it is becoming more computational. Had a bite. It's just lots and lots of data. You got no choice. Let's take a short break and then we'll come back to answer some questions from our listeners. Although getting older is inevitable, you can control how well you age, and Thorne offers a variety of solutions to help you do just that. Thorne's Biological Age Test utilizes a blood panel that analyzes the rate of aging for your entire body and its various organs and provides specific recommendations to help you slow or improve the aging process. Thorne also offers several science-backed formulas that promote healthy aging from nutrient-rich NAD Plus boosters to collagen powders so you can age better inside and out. Find the right formula for you by taking Thorne's Healthy Aging Quiz and get real recommendation from Thorne's medical team. Learn more by visiting thorne.com slash healthyaging. That's T-H-O-R-N-E dot com slash healthyaging. And we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions that have come in from the community. The first question this week comes from a listener who asked, what is the planetary microbiome? So we touched on that. Chris, I'm just wondering if you can give us kind of a holistic view of what we're talking about when we use that phrase. Yeah. So the planetary microbiome is a view of the, of the planet, at a, at a, you know, even though they're very small, it's microbes, but about the broad range of diversity of those microbes that really define uh, our whole planet. And we actually now can map 
at a planetary scale changes in these ecosystems, including say coral reefs, because they also mm -hmm. have their own microbiome. And as the oceans do, we can see changes in livestock. We can see, you know, this really continual movement of microbes now that we have enough technology to do sequencing and have people out collaborating and sampling and characterizing these uh, different environments. So it really is a view of biology at a planetary scale, which is, I think, how it always functions, right? So we're just now being able to see the way the world has always been, which is, you know, even microbes have been moving through the atmosphere, being moved in, in streams and rivers, and also uh, more modern ways like through trucks and through ships and through ballast containers, right? So there is this, you know, and, and you know, more recently COVID, right? We also have people travel and they bring viruses with them and infect others. So we've all gotten a real keen sense of this more recently, but we can now think about it, model it, map it, and actually respond to it uh, at a planetary scale, which is pretty cool. That's very cool. If the next question was, if the planet has a microbiome, are we the viruses? <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what they mean, but, you know, are we the interlopers? Um, certainly the bacteria were here first, you know, and, and we came second. So how, how do we, how do humans fit in to that microbiome? Yes, yeah, so we're more recent additions to the planet, but that's for sure. But we, I think, bring something really unique. And I wouldn't characterize humans as viruses, although commonly discussed in movies and in philosophy, you know, are we doing more harm than good? Because we definitely do some harm and have done harm to not just, you know, our own species, uh, you know, killing our, each other and murder and, and mayhem and, and crime, but also we have created, gen genocide has happened. We've created extinction for different species, right? So humans are not perfect, but I really argue that they're, they're really unique and essential because they're the only species. We are the only species with the awareness of extinction. So really only we have the capacity to address it because we're the only ones that know it's even possible. And so this gives us a unique responsibility as well as awareness of extinction. And I think a duty duty to protect life against it, not, not just our own for selfish reasons, but all life as we know it. Otherwise, it will eventually be burned or crisped by the sun when it engulfs the planet. So, uh, you know, if you look at a long enough time frame, as far as we know, we're the only organisms in the universe that can you know, protect ourselves or others against uh, you know, imminent extinction. So I, I think it uh, I think it gives a unique place and duty. Uh, and that means we're not the virus. We might even be the savers. The savers. And is it fair to use the term supra organ? Organism, which I've, I've seen in some articles saying that humans are really, we are really an amalgamation of the microbes that make us up. Yeah, there's uh, some terms for this, like the holobiont is one idea, or uh, some people call it omnigenic, meaning all genes in a human genome contribute to a phenotype or also other genes. Uh, some people just call it, you know, ecosystem or even a meta species. There's a number of terms for it. But empirically, also another one is just called systems biology. We look at all systems together. But really, the, you know, that's what you should be doing anyway. If you want to understand a system, you want to have included all the components that may mediate changes in any given system, whether it's like an engine uh, for a car where you're trying to figure out if something's wrong with the car. You look at all the components, not just something, say, only in the front of the hood or, you know, you look at the front, the bottom, anything that's connecting, all the wires, all the plumbing, uh, where the gas is coming from. So same thing's true with our bodies and our ecosystems. We want to look at them holistically. And I think, you know, Whatever you might call it is 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 not as material as the fact that you have to do that to have a better model of what's happening. And so I, I think the modeling has to be done, but then also you want to predict what will happen. That's the best test of understanding is can I make a model and guess how well you'll do for, say, for a therapy for a cancer, for a probiotic, for a gut problem, uh, or even for an ecosystem. You can make these things called gene drives, which are self-replicating entities that move through an ecosystem and copy themselves and like fundamentally change what species are even present in an ecosystem. So we have these really awesome awesome new powers genetically, but we've just begun to roll them out. Uh, but we might need all of them to survive long term, I think. So how connected are our genomes to each other? I mean, you know, if you've got a dog, 
that licks your face, you know, you and your, your partner, your wife, spouse, etc., sleep together every night. How much of an exchange is going on that impacts the mutual microbiome? Yeah, there is, you know, the old saying is that we're all about, you know, 99.9% similar to each other at the human genetic level, like your human DNA. But at a microbial level, you could be anywhere from 95% the same as someone, say, you live with to only 5 or 10% the same from someone far away with a very different diet and a very different uh, background and different lifestyle. So, you know, the, the microbiome diversity can be, you know, vastly divergent between people. And that means also how you eat, how you process food, how you, how you have gut inflammation, how you actually maintain homeostasis in your gut and your body. It depends a lot on where you where you came from, where you, where you grew up. And that's actually another thing you can do is that everyone does have what's called a sort of a gut print or kind of like mm, a gut print. print. You have a gut print which kind of tells that it's you, right? So if we set up a little DNA sequencer in every toilet around New York City, I could tell you where you're probably going to the bathroom if I had <laughs> enough of your samples before. So, uh, <laughs> which we have not done yet, but I would love, love, love to do that. Uh, it'd be interesting. Uh, so. So that's one thing. And also there's actually this really great website called the uh, uh, the ITALS, the Interactive Tree of Life, where you can you can put in any two species and see how convergent or divergent they are. Are they one million years apart or one, you know, one billion years apart? So that's a it's a fun uh, tool that you can use as well. So uh, the next person asked, how do I heal my microbiome? So that that's interesting because embedded in the question is is the assumption that our microbiome needs to be healed. That something is quote wrong, as Dr. Blazer would have said, things are things are missing. So do it, do our microbiomes need healing? And if so, what's the best way to do that? Um, yeah, so it, it, it depends on the person, you know, and, and sort of your microbiome. So it doesn't necessarily need healing. Sometimes you just might need a different diet and your microbiome will respond. So that in a sense, you've healed your microbiome, but really you just change what you're giving to your microbiome. But there are places where you can have, you know, really a deli belly, they call it. You can get really bad. You can get parasites. You can have, you know, really sharp disruptions of your microbiome in your gut, which leads to persistent diarrhea or IBS or IBD. And, you know, we've shown with clinical trials that we've done at Thorne, you know, a paper we just published a little bit over a year ago was you know, ways where if you have a guided intervention for what probiotics and prebiotics to use, and some of which I know you prescribe clinically for your patients, this can help uh, heal the microbiome and make it so it's more robust. It actually helps you process food. It leads to lower inflammation and, and it generally makes you healthier. So I think, you know, if it is deeply perturbed, you know, some patients are harder than others, but in, in some of the patients we've healed, you know, I've gotten some of these emails and I know you have as well, where patients who hadn't had a normal bowel movement sometimes for five or six years, suddenly can feel like they can go to the bathroom, you know? And so it's really quality of life. It's, you know, the ability to live without suffering that can, you know, really be healed if it's done right. You know, it's it's interesting because I, I often see in the mainstream medical journals the comment, probiotics don't work, probiotics are a waste of time. And I think, well, that's discordant with the published research. It's discordant with the literature. I, I assume you agree with that statement that, that it doesn't jive with what we know that probiotics can work. It's just that different probiotics work differently for different people. Right, right. It really just depends. Yeah, exactly. So it's, um, it, it is, and it's like, you know, like most medicine, right? We think of precision medicine as if it was this big revelation, but we should always have been doing precision medicine. You give the right drug to the right person at the right dose or the right treatment, the right, uh, essentially, you know, paradigm for someone to be treated in to match that patient as best you can. Otherwise you're doing a disservice to that patient. Um, and so that's, that's what has, has finally happened. I, I think, um, that, that we've reached that stage. Yeah, we're getting to the point where we can 
do this gut microbiome testing and say, you're more likely to respond to lactobacillus or bifidobacteria or bacillus coagulans or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So here's an interesting question. If our bodies are tuned to a planetary microbiome, I assume they mean our bodies are tuned to Earth's microbiome, what's going to happen if uh, we bring back a sample from the Mars rover and there's a a microbe in that Mars rover in a rock, what's going to happen? Is it uh, is it possible that that would be bad for us or good for us or unpredictable? I mean, what's your take on that? Is there going to be a war of the world, somebody says? <laughs> a microbial gonna... war of the worlds? Yeah, it, it's, it's possible. I think what happened when we brought smallpox over to North America from Europe, right? That, that, that was, of course, not so good for the native population, amongst other atrocities that happened. So it, we know that, you know, there, that or even, you know, uh, Black Death and and bubonic plague was used as, as war in the 12th century and people would actually launch a stool over the gates of different city-states so uh, pretty gross and pretty devastating but effective and uh, you know so I, I think you know the worry is that we might have an Andromeda strain is what Michael Craig called that someone would come back to earth and we'd all be doomed it would kill everyone on the earth so that's, it's probably unlikely just because you know microbes are really attuned to where they come from and would probably wouldn't even replicate that well in, in humans or in other terrestrial creatures probably but uh, unless we share a common ancestor for for all of our dna which might be three or four billion years in the in the past then maybe they would right so we we don't know yet but there is a mars sample return mission slated for 2032 where we nasa and esa will be bringing back samples from mars to characterize them to examine them and see if they have life and then potentially try and grow it here or at least characterize it and they're going to do it very carefully it's like equivalent like a psl4 laboratory like you see ebola being studied in or marburg or really contagious viruses, uh, and then it'll be built uh, containment around that as well. So it should be pretty contained, and hopefully we'll be okay. But um, but maybe it's not a risk. What if something comes back that is a magical probiotic that gives you nutrients and vitamins, and you just have to take the pill once, and it's the Martian super probiotic? Like, you know, we, we don't know what we'll find. It could be good. It could be bad. It could be neutral. But I, I want to keep all options on the table until we until we get it. So I know that you have published some studies based on swabs you've done on the International Space Station. And uh, I'm wondering, have you found microbes growing there that nobody had ever seen before? And if so, did where do those microbes come from? We have. Yeah, so that's interesting is we have several papers showing that these species continue to adapt and evolve in space just like they do everywhere else. And they evolved so much that eventually they have enough of a genetic difference. They're technically a new species, but almost all of them came from the crews that brought them up. So they really, oh, okay. you know, some acinobacter, some staph, some, uh, you know, normal uh, some cutobacter, some types of species you find in skin that just have evolved uh, while they're in space. And so we don't think they're coming from outer space into the space station, colonizing and being brought back down. It's just that they're terrestrial organisms that have become so divergent and evolved that they actually are technically a new species. So there's no in space invaders that are sneaking on board. Uh, no, not to our knowledge. We're, we're going to keep looking for them, though, I think. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, and I know you have found some very strange things on the, we say, the, the toilet on the International Space Station is, seems like a particularly fertile place to swab. Yeah, like 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 all toilets, it's, you know, it's a it's a little mini rainforest of diversity. <laughs> so we uh, we found there's some strains of uh, Acinetobacter pitii, it's called, where it actually, it became more resistant to antibiotics than uh, the ground controls over time. So, you know, some things, you know, we do give us a, a moment of pause where we want to really keep an eye on the station, keep an eye on the environment, make sure it doesn't get uh, too bad. But we, we have seen some interesting changes uh, for those space station microbes. So we need to be careful what we're bringing back. Yeah, absolutely. Th absolutely. Yeah, yes. with those rocks. Mm -hmm. So next question, civilization 
Decolonization uncouples us from living naturally with our planetary microbiome. How do we get back to embracing the planet microbiome instead of fighting against it? Which is, that's a very interesting question. Well, I mean, you, know, you can't manage something until you measure it and you can't mm -hmm. modify something until you've got a model of it. You know, so I think we, we're doing both those things now as we're measuring and modeling. We can begin to at least know what would happen if we change something and know what's there. So, we, so even if something goes wrong, we can get back to it. But, you know, I think we can, instead of just chopping down rainforests and starting to, you know, build farmland, we can study them first to at least know what was there, but then also repopulate. So we, we can bring back ecosystems back to how they were before. There's even species being brought back. There's the woolly mammoth. I've uh, been working with Colossal with their team to, to re resurrect the woolly mammoth, bring it back from extinction. And there too, there's a lot of discussion about should we resurrect the other ecosystem that came with it? Uh, mm -hmm. That's also something that we're working on uh, right now is to bring back the mice plants. So it's not just about even embracing the microbiome, but even reconstructing what was the ancestral microbiome and even the ancestral ecosystem for us and maybe for some woolly mammoths in the near future. Okay, so that, that begs the question, Jurassic Park. <laughs> what is that? Um, is that even remotely possible what they did in that movie? There, the DNA is too degraded. So it's they, and they admit as much in the movie. It's very short snippets, but uh, there's no good DNA sample that's been ever found from a dinosaur. <laughs> we have to find an egg. Not yet. So if you, give it, if you can get a really good intact piece of DNA, you could in theory give it a shot, but it would likely fail. <laughs> oh, how disappointing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what, last question um, how have humans changed the planet's microbiome for good or for bad? So we've alluded to that. You know, we've, we've talked about that a little bit. Has, we, we, we talked about how the human gut microbiome is less diverse. Is that is the overall the microbiome of the planet less diverse? Has that really changed or is it just moved around? It, it is. Uh, on coral reefs, for sure, it is. And in other ecosystems we've measured, it does seem to be decreasing. So and this is an ongoing debate amongst naturalists, ecologists, modelers, how many species have we lost? How many are we losing? How many are left? And, and these are ongoing debates, but the trend is definitely in the downward trajectory, which is not good, is that we're, uh, you know, murdering whole species relatively quickly, and we're hoping not to murder any of them, right? So we really do need to... Uh, you know, I think prevent that from happening more in the future. And there are things we can do to, as you said, bring back, if not woolly mammoths, at least the, the, the ecosystem that accompany, yeah, the microbes that accompanied the woolly mammoths. Which is kind of, sounds odd to think about, but it, the, the technology for the sequencing and the synthesis and the building of species is, is in our hands. So it's really an extraordinary time. All right, folks, that's all the time we have this week. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. Thank my pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So if people want to follow your work and, and find out what you're up to, what's the best place to keep track of you? Uh, a couple places. There's uh, on Twitter, I'm uh, at Mason underscore lab, as in Mason lab. So uh, that's one place. Then also on Instagram, I'm Christopher.e.mason. And also on our lab's website is MasonLab.net is where a lot of the material is. And yeah, also feel free to email me if you have any specific questions. My email is on the website. Great. Excellent. As always, thank you everyone for listening and Hopefully you'll tune in again for another interesting podcast. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at Thorn Health. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorne's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorne Podcast.